0: Welcome back to the podcast. We are jumping into our Keep the Fires Burning series again this week, and we're just about ready to wrap up this series. Uh, We've still got one more episode after this one, so... If you want to re-listen to past episodes, or it's your first time on this podcast, and you want to catch up on past episodes of this particular series, you can check out the link in the description, which has uh, the uh, link to the course page, which will give you the full course and Keep the Fires Burning, and links to meet all the different characters. So, but before we jump into today's lessons, I want to talk to you guys a little bit about the ministry here at Evidence for Faith, because the podcast is not the only thing we do. Uh, We have the podcast, we do a bunch of other different Bible studies and series on our website, sometimes as we'll have worksheets or PowerPoints or different tools that you can use in your own personal Bible study. Uh, we also go out and speak to different groups, and we always put on these events for free. The only thing that we do at Evidence for Faith that's not free is our occasional specialty programs. so like taking people down to marine biology or taking a tour group to Israel, and those programs are often we just charge the cost of the program. Um, the reason for that is we never want to charge someone or overcharge someone to hear the gospel. If you are truly want to pursue uh, God and get into your Bible and you just need a little help, we want to make sure that those tools are out there and available for you. So that said... Uh, this whole operation is 100% donor-supported. And we're always looking for people to come alongside us and help us keep going. So if you've been impacted by the work here, we do have uh, Evidence for Faith, and you want to help us continue doing um, a lot of this, not just producing content, but a lot of the ministry uh, and missionary work that goes on top of that with traveling and going to see different groups um, and different people and different clubs and whatnot, uh, you can become a donor at evidenceforfaith.org. That's evidence number for faith.org. We're looking for monthly supporters, one-time donations, or however you want to fit that in your financial planning this year for giving. Uh, we'd be really honored if you'd consider it and come alongside us and help us reach 100% funding. So uh, with that, we are going to jump in today's lessons, Keep the Fires Burning, with Michael Lane, and today we get to meet Mary.
1: Hello there and welcome to Evidence for Faith as we continue in our series, Keep the Fires Burning. These are minor characters with major lessons that teach us how to walk closer with God and and how to keep our walk with God going. And in today's lesson, we're going to be looking at a very familiar character. Most will recognize this name. Actually, there's quite a few people with this name in the Bible. We're going to be talking about Mary. But which one? Ah, Stay tuned and you will hear. Um, But Mary is gonna teach us a lot. There's some really great information. And this is um, Mary who is, well, I'll give it to you. It's the Mary who is the sister of Martha. Oh my gosh, this story is so, so great as we get into this. So uh, grab your Bibles. We're gonna be looking in uh, mostly in the Gospel of John today, different passages and stuff, but let's get into this wonderful story and see what we can reap. What can we glean from her life to deepen our walk and our relationship with Christ. So, are you ready? Well, let's begin, but first, let me tell you a story. As a small boy, one of my highlights of my life was when my parents would drive the family six hours to visit my granny in Southern Illinois. Now, she was widowed way before I was born and lived in a very, very large house heated by coal fireplaces. Oh, she was quite old and could not see very well, but I can still remember her sitting in her rocking chair near that fireplace in the dining room. Or in summertime, she would often sit on a porch swing on the huge uh, front porch off the dining room. Well, one time, and I was quite small when this all took place, but I still remember this. I came into the dining room where she was sitting with her Bible and a magnifying glass in her rocking chair, And I sat down in front of her on the floor. She looked at me with her faded eyes, wanting to know what I wanted to ask her. And I said, do you remember being a little girl about my age? She nodded that she did. For someone very old, and I mean, she was very old. She lived to like 98 or 99 years old. Um, She had a mind that was as sharp as a tack. Oh man, did she have a, a quick mind. I asked her to tell me what she remembered when she was a little girl. remember her leaning back in her big chair and her glancing around the room. You could just tell things were flooding her mind at this point uh, as as they were doing this. And she began by telling me about a parade that she went to when she was a little girl. A parade. Um, What the parade was about, it was about the Spanish-American War. I'm like, the Spanish-American War? Whoa, that was like ancient history. She spoke about this parade of when soldiers paraded through the streets of her small town on their way to fight. She talked about also chores that she used to do around the house growing up. I asked her, like, what? She told me about churning butter. That's how I learned how to churn butter. She told me all about it. and She had a butter churn. Uh, She told me about... One of her her jobs was feeding the animals. She told me stories about going berry picking and playing with other children. She went on and on for a long time. I think she enjoyed telling me these stories. I was fascinated. I took in story after story. Some of my favorite stories, though, were about her relationship and her dependency upon God. That seemed to me something she really wanted to instill in me. And she succeeded. Matter of fact, I have one of her Bibles that she would sit and read and the actual magnifying glass she would use to read it because her eyesight was so poor. The impact from those moments of her telling me about her relationship with God and how important it is is still being played out today in my life. And as you listen and read what I write and record in this ministry, sitting at the feet of Of my Granny Lane was a happy, precious, and soothing place. You know, I can almost feel the warmth and see the glow of the fire in her fireplace. Well, that story does pertain somewhat to what we're going to talk about. You see, the New Testament, as I said, we're doing Mary, and Mary, well, there's a lot of New Testament characters named Mary. This one, as I said, is the sister of Martha who shared their home with their brother Lazarus um, in the town of Bethany. Now, this Mary is mentioned on three occasions in the Gospels. And on each occasion, if you study these things, you're going to see something fascinating. As I've told you, you're always the best way to do, a very easy way to do a Bible study is don't read a long, massive, like, chapter or something at one time and then just put your Bible away. Take small sections, paragraphs, or even verses, and then look for the who, what, when, where, why. And house. And in doing that, you have to do some research. Yes, you might have to look up other passages, get a concordance out, and look up other passages and things, or maybe even get out a dictionary or something, uh, or an atlas. But oh my gosh, just by doing that and praying that the Holy Spirit will teach you, because he wants you to know this stuff. He wants to tell you things. It, it's amazing how much you can glean from a Bible study doing this. So we see Mary here at the feet of Jesus. She is always portrayed, by the way, in a positive way in Scripture, always. And we can indeed learn quite a bit about our relationship and our walk with Jesus through her. Now, we're first introduced to Mary when Jesus and his entourage enter the village of Bethany. Now, that's about two miles east of Jerusalem, on the opposite side of the Mount of Olives. Luke, We'll start with Luke here, Luke chapter 10, verses 38 through 42. Let's take a look at this. If you have your Bibles, you can open up and read. I'm doing uh, this primarily out of the English Standard Version, so I'm going to read Luke 10, 38 through 42, and we read. Now, as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed her, or sorry, welcomed him into her house, and she had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving, and she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her to help me. But the Lord answered, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary here has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. Well, Martha appears, if you read this carefully, you're going to see some interesting things about Martha. And we'll have a lesson, the next lesson's on her, in fact. Martha appears to be the head of the house, Um, as she's mentioned, not only first, but the house is actually called her house. In John's Gospel, we read that they have a brother named Lazarus as well, who also appears, in the way that this is written, to be younger than Martha. So she apparently is the older sister, and the house is hers. And anyway, as, as the passage in Luke unfolds, what we just read, Martha is preparing a meal for Jesus and his followers. And this is the custom of the, this area, that when guests arrive in your house, you supply them with a meal or at least beverages. It appears that Mary was going a little overboard, though, in her preparation. I mean, she must have been doing like a like a major meal like Americans have on Thanksgiving or something. Uh, she must have had a lot of pots cooking and stuff. But anyway, Mary, who would have normally been helping Martha, she's the younger, helping Martha in this preparation, has removed herself from this duty and is found sitting at Jesus' feet and listening to him teach. Now, this infuriates Martha so much so that she asked Jesus to reprimand Mary. Instead, he supports Mary's decision. But but there's more here that needs to be addressed about Mary sitting at the feet of Jesus. Because these writers, these gospel writers, make mention of this, and there is something to it. You see, to sit at a rabbi's feet meant something in the first century A.D. It meant that you were learning you were a disciple of that rabbi notice when jesus healed the demon possessed man in uh guess uh the people found him sitting where sitting quietly at the feet of jesus that's in luke chapter 8 verse 35 let me read it then people went out to see what had happened and they came to jesus and found the man from whom the demons had gone sitting at the feet of jesus Clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. Yeah, that's not the only example we see of sitting of a disciple sitting at the foot of a rabbi. Paul talks about this in Acts chapter twenty-two. Paul's speaking about his training as being a Pharisee. He describes himself sitting at the feet of his teacher. Look in Acts 22.3, three. We read, "I am a Jew." This is Paul writing this. "I am a Jew, born in Tarsus of Cilicia, and brought up in this city." educated at the feet of Gamaliel, according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers. Here we have it. Paul sitting and being described sitting at the feet of a rabbi. Now, you see, the amazing thing is that women in the first century were not allowed, usually, were not even permitted to be disciples of a rabbi. Now, this was a man-made law. And Jesus broke down this barrier. I mean, he shatters this in his ministry. He allowed women to sit and learn at his feet. No doubt. There were a lot of eyes popping up and some questionable frowns and things about Jesus with allowing women to sit at his feet and listen along with his disciples like this. But um, in fact, he, he seems to welcome it. He actually praises Mary for doing it. Women, you see... In the Jewish culture at the time of Jesus were often not looked upon with favor. This, this is really sad. In his book uh, titled Jerusalem in the Time of Jesus, Dr. Jeremiah states, and I'll quote this, quote, the woman's position in the house corresponded to exclusion of public life. Their education was limited to domestic arts, especially needlework, and weaving food and drink. Unquote. Well, there's more here. There's more in the ancient Jewish Mishnah, the book Sota, uh, three four states that quote: If any man gives his daughter a knowledge of the law, it is as though he has taught her lechery. Unquote. Oh my gosh, that's like making her a prostitute. Gee. Now this, of course, is not God's plan. This, These things, this, this idea was a man-made law put upon that society. Thus, with this stereotype now, having Mary sitting, you see what, what's going on? Having Mary sitting and learning at the feet of Jesus goes against the culture of the day. I mean, Jesus totally shatters this, this cultural standing of women, and encouraged women to assume a disciple's position. Later in that century and into the beginning of the next. We read in early church history that the leadership roles in churches throughout the Roman Empire were, at the beginning, many were held by women. Many of the leadership roles were held by women. You, we see this, even not just in Christian writings, but even in some of the Roman historians writing this, and talks about women being deacons and, and leaders of churches and stuff. Now, some people might be wanting to turn me off right now um like you're talking about women being involved in ministry and stuff well yes i am because jesus allowed them to be disciples and and jesus i mean they followed him along some supported his ministry but you know something there's more than that there's a lot of examples of I i can give you um 11 different examples real quick 11 different examples of women leaders found in the new testament and I'm, I'm not making these up. I'm just pulling it right out of Scripture. Um, so if you have a problem with this, your problem's not with me. The problem is going to be with God, because God is actually the one who is putting this down and telling these people what to write. In Luke chapter 2, verses 36 through 38, we read about um, the first one here, Anna. Anna is a prophetess. What's she doing? She's working at the temple. She's a prophetess working at the temple. She's the one who declared Jesus as the Son of God. First person to do that. She does it. It's a woman. God could have had one of the other men. He could have had the high priest or something. No, a woman, Anna. A second example. How about in Acts chapter 21, verses 8 and 9? You have the four daughters of Philip the evangelist. Well, what's so big about that? They prophesied for God. It says it right there in Acts 21. A third example I can give you. How about the women at the garden tomb? They were the ones who were instructed to go tell and teach the disciples that Jesus was indeed alive. Jesus instructed them to give the, his disciples a message. Did you Don't you find it interesting that Jesus didn't have the disciples? He didn't meet the disciples first, but he met with women. He let women be the first to go out and tell the disciples that Jesus was alive. Uh, this is found in John chapter 20, verses 17 and 18. Look it up. You can see it. That Jesus didn't appear first to his disciples or to any men. He went first to women. A fourth example. There's a, a gal that's named Aphia. This is in the book of Philemon, the second verse there. Um, and Paul, is, as he's writing this letter, this beautiful letter, he he writes and, and um, refers to who is a leader of the church of Colossae. Interesting. A fifth example. Uh, Nympha. In Colossians chapter four verse fifteen, she allowed and hosted a church to meet in her house in the city of Lydia. Sia. Not saying that she's the major preacher or anything, but she is hosting this. She has some major role in this, um, allowing her church to be used as uh, or her house be used as a church. A sixth example is very classic and very well known: Priscilla, the wife of Aquila. If you read carefully in Acts chapter 18 verse 26 you're gonna see something fascinating she's the one who teaches the great evangelist who would be the great evangelist Apollos all about Jesus because she's mentioned first in this she is in the way that the Greek is put up she is apparently the major one doing the teaching hmm and that's not the only thing about her. She has a church meeting in her house. That's recorded in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 19. Isn't it interesting that Aquila is not mentioned a lot of times as the first person in all of this? Paul, in Romans chapter 16, verse 3, even calls her a fellow worker in advancing the gospel. She has a role in ministry. A seventh example I can give you is a gal named Phoebe. Phoebe was a key leader in the church at Sancreia, that's found also in Romans chapter 16, verses 1 and 2. And Paul, it's interesting when you read that passage, Paul refers to her by her name, yes, but by the male title of diakonos. Diakonos is the Greek word where we get the church office deacon from. The word deacon actually didn't come into existence until the latter part of the 4th century A.D. Um, that was the term that, that was used, though. She's also referred to as a prostatus, prostatus in the Greek. What's a prostatus? That's a person of authority over other people. In this case, she's over some members of her church. Maybe they're female. We don't know. Paul doesn't tell us, but she's definitely in a leadership role in this church. The early church uh, history records that it was she to whom Paul chose to even deliver the letter that he wrote, the epistle to the Romans um, that he wrote when he was in Corinth to send to Rome. And see, it it matters. Um, that when you pick a letter, to, you're going to write a letter to somebody, the person who is carrying the letter, their character speaks about um, the authority of that. Paul gives it to this woman. Even Origen, the Early church father, Origen, who no one would ever call um, hardly pro-woman, saw Phoebe as having, in some form, an apostolic authority. And he writes this in his commentarium in Apostolum B. Poli Ad Romanos, and it's in chapter 10, um, section uh, 1278. Oh, there's, how about Lydia of Philippi? What did she do? She taught and converted her entire household to Christ. That's uh, found in Acts 16. Oh, here's two people. Um, Yodia and um Sin Synt- uh having problems saying this one. Um Syntyche, uh contended it reads in Philippians 4, 2 and 3, um it's recorded as quote Contend at my side in the cause of the gospel, along with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers. Paul is writing that these two ladies are fellow workers working alongside of him. Paul, even later on, equates their roles with Priscilla. And we've already mentioned Priscilla as being a major teacher. A tenth one. How about this one? Junia. Junia is another helper of Paul in his ministries. Who is named, um, who is named as a form of an apostle? The word he uses to describe her is the Greek word apostolos, which, though she appears to be a minor one, this is in Romans chapter sixteen verse seven. Nonetheless, he does give her that title. He calls her an apostos, uh, apostolos. He he calls her that. It's where we get the word apostle from. Hmm. What did she do and stuff? We're not told. Paul just gives her this title. Uh, and the the last example I'll give you, because this could go on for a while. There are a few more, but I just want to show you these from the New Testament. The woman at the well in John chapter 4. This is one of the most fascinating passages um, to me. The woman at the well, the Samaritan woman. Um, Jesus appears to her, goes out of his way to appear to her on his way to Galilee, um, goes forth. Well, she meets him. She then takes the information, realizes he's the Messiah. She goes forth. What she do? She runs into the town. She teaches the people, explaining to all of her town folks that the Messiah has come. And the people come out to meet Jesus. And he stays there for a couple of days as a revival breaks out in the city. But who did it all? This unnamed woman at the well. Isn't it fascinating? Why did Jesus appear to, to a woman and not to one of the men? Why not the mayor of the town? Non, why not one of the major officials of the town who was a male? No, he meets a woman at the well. And if you catch this, she's the first evangelist, the first one to take the gospel message, um, the news of Jesus being the Messiah, the Messiah has come, and she is the first one to take it and tells everybody in town about it. Jesus uses women in ministry. He accepted it, and he allows Mary to sit at his feet. Now, if this caught you off guard or anything, I mean, some some people just, I mean, I have been, hate to say it, but I have been to some churches that women are not allowed to speak once they enter the building. Um, I have been to a church that women were not allowed to sing any of the songs, only the men could sing songs. I mean, I've seen some really weird cultural things in this country. Sometimes, when I've visited some churches, um, where they just women have such a you know a lower role and stuff. Well, you got these problems here. There's Eleven examples that I've given you here, um, uh, twelve people in total. Um, actually, more than that, because there's the four sisters. Um, but there's a number of women here who definitely were somehow involved in some type of ministry. But we're not going to dwell on this anymore. I'm just trying to make the point. Jesus was breaking the barrier of allowing women to listen to him and to be disciples, to to be trained. That's what's going on. Now, indeed, Jesus broke this tradition. And boy, it was a tradition, again, that was made as a traditional Jewish law. It was not coming down from God. So let's get back to our study now that we've spent so much time on that. Notice what Mary's doing in in, uh, Luke 10 when we read that. She's listening to God speak, sitting at the feet of Jesus, listening to God speak, listening to the words of God. Martha could have and should have done the same. But no, Martha is too wrapped up in the setting of the table, preparing the meal, doing all of this, making sure everything's baked right and all this. Oh, my gosh. She was so into all this and and setting such a large table because Jesus, no doubt, had a large following with him. Um, She was missing the important thing. And Jesus tells us what that is, listening to God. And when Martha tries to get Jesus to reprimand Mary, (laughs) Jesus reprimands Martha instead. He says in Luke 10, 42, I'm going to read this one out of the God's Word translation. I just like the way that this one um, puts this in print. It says, um, we read, there's only one thing you need worth worrying about. Mary has made the right choice, and that one thing will not be taken away from her. I just love the God's Word translation on that. Anyway, there's a faith lesson here for us, folks. There's a faith lesson here for us. Too often, we get caught up in things that are not important instead of dealing with the single most important thing. What is that? Listening to God. But before we judge Martha and start demeaning her, we need to examine ourselves, folks, all of us, myself included. What gets in my way of listening to God? In other words, what stops me or hinders me from reading and studying his word? What takes priority over my relationship with God? I was talking to a person not too long ago who said, well, once football season comes, I, you know, I like going to church and stuff, but once football season comes and the Packers start playing, you know, I've got, I, I can't go to church. I can't miss the pregame and all this kind of thing if it's on a Sunday. Really? That takes priority over your relationship with God. God is telling us that sitting at the feet of Jesus and taking in his words are the most are more important than all these other things. Christians, how our lives would change if we just set our priorities in order to God's design and not ours. Now We read about Mary in another passage. In John chapter 11, we come across Mary again, dealing with the raising of her brother Lazarus from the dead. Now, it's a long passage, but it's very important that we read this. I'm going to actually read John chapter 11, the the 32 verses here, uh, starting at verse 1. And we're going to see Mary and Martha and Lazarus through this thing. But focus, we want to, again, focus mostly on what Mary is doing. So, as we begin, this is, again, I'll be reading out of the English Standard Version. Now, a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed Jesus with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, he he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said... This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Now, let's move down to verse 17. If you'd been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I I know he'll rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the son of God who is coming into the world. When she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, the teacher's here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now, Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep. Now, when Mary came to where Jesus was, she saw him, and she fell at his feet, saying, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. In this passage, we read Lazarus has died. He's been dead for four days by the time Jesus gets there. Isn't it interesting, Jesus in other times when somebody's ill just says the word and doesn't even go, he just heals them by just speaking? He doesn't do that here because Jesus has a purpose that we do not understand at this point. Martha and Mary had sent word to Jesus for him to come and heal their brother, but Jesus delayed his coming to make sure, this is it, to make sure Lazarus was dead and not just dead, four days dead, and put into the tomb, so there will be no question about him faking his death. No, this was no, no way could he fake this death. Also, the reason Jesus waited until Lazarus was dead four days, I believe was to deal with a Jewish myth that they were teaching at that time, that the soul hung around the body for three days, hoping to find a way back into it. Thus, by day four, all hope of resuscitation was gone. And the body is already being broken down by bacterial and enzymatic actions of fungi and bacteria. So it's already broken down and starting to ooze and smell. We find Martha now being the one leaving the duties of mourning and meeting Jesus on the road. Did you catch that? She's the one who gets up and goes. She came to meet Jesus and talked with him. She's obviously learned from this last encounter she had about what was important. So kudos to Martha. She caught on here. After speaking with Jesus, she returned to the house where Mary is sitting with the mourners. Now, Martha, as it says, whispers into her ear that Jesus has come and wanted to see her. So Mary quickly arises and goes to meet the Lord, where she again, did you catch it, falls at his feet. She echoes Martha's complaint about Jesus being too slow or waiting too long to help. No doubt Martha has influenced her little sister somewhat here. But grief will also cause people to react in different ways. We can't really blame them too much on this, because when you're grieving, sometimes you don't make the wisest decisions. The point here is that we need to focus on where Mary is. She's at the feet of Jesus. But Jesus had a plan. Nothing escaped him. This was all planned out, all organized. It was all predestined, if you will, uh, for the Jewish leaders and the scores of the people watching that would bring him great glory. God's going to get great glory from this because Lazarus was raised from the dead. Do you understand that if Jesus had come on the time schedule that Mary and Martha designed, or if Jesus had just said, you know, Lazarus, be healed, being miles and miles away, this miracle would not have happened. These people would not have come to believe in Jesus. Jesus would not have received as much glory as he did from this. That's why. And look what happened as a result of God's planning in this event. In John eleven forty five, 45, we read, Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did believed in him god got glory jesus got glory from this his kingdom was added as we've seen god sometimes places difficulties in our lives to bring him glory i mean he does and it's not pleasant these times are not pleasant as we go through them and we often just don't understand why he is silent or why he seems deaf to our prayers but in such times, what we need to do, we need to realize that he is still in control and that he does have a plan that works for good. Maybe not the good that we wish, but the good that glorifies him and adds to his kingdom. We simply must do what the old hymn says to trust and obey. Now, there's a third time we come across Mary. Um and it's right after the raising of Lazarus. John records this, uh, this amazing event also. So going to John chapter 12, the first eight verses, this very well-known story, um, we see something amazing. And Sometimes it's a little puzzling to to Christians as they read this as to what's going on. So let's read the passage. Let me explain what's happening. Uh, John 12, 1 through 8. Six days before Passover, stop here for a second. That's the Passover right before Jesus, um, well, the, the Passover where Jesus is actually going to die. So that's where it's taking place. Let's go back. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served. Martha <laughs> served. And Lazarus was one of those reclining at the table with him. Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of the disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? Now he said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put in it. Jesus said, Leave her alone, so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you will always have with you, but you do not always have me. Now, like I say, many people know this story, but most don't understand exactly what Mary is doing, what's actually going on. Now, understand, first of all, this happens shortly before Jesus goes to the cross. We know that he's being anointed, and they anointed people after they died um, and put them in the grave and stuff, but there's more to it, more to it than that. You see, during the meal, which we again see Martha serving, (laughs) that's Martha, she's a server, Mary takes about 12 ounces or so of perfume, or nard, but we're told it's about a year's wage. That's how much it costs, a year's wage, and pours it on the feet of Jesus. I looked this up. That would be the equivalent today of taking a 12-ounce bottle of Chanel Grand Extract perfume, which, by the way, if you don't know, that costs $4,200 an ounce. Taking that large bottle and pouring it on Jesus's The Gospel of Mark includes the story also and says that she anointed his head. His head, but John is focusing on the fact that uh, that she does um, she does here um, this here with her f- uh, focusing on his feet, which is where she spends a lot of time. Now, why is this so strange and what's so special about it? You see, anointing Jesus's feet was would be the custom of the day when a guest comes in, particularly an honored guest they wouldn't do it with costly gift like this. It was simply done with water, sometimes with olive oil afterwards. But John is telling us a couple of very, very important things here. First, Mary is anointing Jesus with what must have been her most precious gift. We're told the price of this. It's not like she's anointing him with some small token she bought at Walmart, like... Share Decades 60 Body Mist Perfume that you can buy for just a couple of bucks. No, this was something that was extremely costly and precious to Mary. Most likely, because of its cost, it was the most expensive and precious item that she personally owed. I don't think she probably owned anything as expensive as this. And what does she do with it? She surrenders it and offers it all to Jesus, Notice she didn't pour out just a few ounces or just a little dab on a cloth. She offered it all. Mark 14 tells us she actually broke the vessel that it was contained in. So she used it all. This is a selfless act of sacrificing to God. You know what else it is? It's a form of worship. Sacrificing to God is worship. Paul tells us in Romans 12:1 that sacrificing to God is worship. So this is a beautiful, beautiful example of worship, one of the most beautiful examples in the entire Bible. And the disciples didn't sit around, even though this is a worship height, they weren't sitting around singing choruses and stuff. This was probably done in, in awe. They were probably all shocked by this, and it was probably all done in silence. We know that some, like Judas, were shocked by this. I mean, there's no question about it. He was shocked by it. Again, here is an important lesson for us to grasp. And not just grasp, but to implement in our lives. Mary sacrificed her most precious possession to Jesus. What a beautiful act of worship. Let me ask you, what have you refused to? to offer up to the Lord? What do you refuse to part with? Or have you actually offered all on the altar to him? Maybe you have. Told you there was more than one thing. Second, excuse me. Notice what Mary wipes Jesus' feet with. Now this is the really interesting thing. Oh my gosh, this is so cool. It was customary to wash an an honored guest's feet and dry them, but with a towel. I'm pretty certain Mary probably had towels. Mary and Martha had towels in the house. Why didn't she use one? Why did she willingly choose something different? Well, she has a good reason. It says she wiped his feet with her hair. Have you ever thought about this? Why her hair? What significance, what meaning could possibly be here? Oh, my gosh, this is so cool. To understand this, you got to go back and examine the ancient Jewish culture. To understand this, to the Jews, the ancient Jews, a woman's hair was her glory. It was her glory. We, we even see this in Scripture. Paul writes about this in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 15. I'm going to read this out of the New King James Version. But if a woman has long hair, it is a glory to her. A glory to her. For her hair is given to her for recovery. Her hair is her glory. You see, back then, Jewish women would seldom ever cut their hair because it was their glory. Now, what is Mary doing? Take that, apply it to what we're told. She's already poured out her most precious possession to Jesus. She's kneeling at the feet of Jesus. And then she relinquishes her glory by using her hair to glorify him. This is one of the most descriptive and beautiful examples of worship. Kneeling at the feet of Jesus, offering him our most precious possession, and surrendering to him our glory. Folks, that's how it's done. So let's learn from Mary's example here. Have you knelt and humbled yourself to Jesus? Have you offered up all on the altar to him? Have you surrendered your glory to him? Let me ask, have you ever committed your life and trust Jesus as your Lord and Savior? If not, what's keeping you from doing these things? What's holding you back? Mary is a lesser character that is mentioned only a few times in Scripture, but many still recall her name when it's brought up. She teaches us that we need to often sit at the feet of Jesus, listening and communing with him. She teaches us that even though we walk with God, we will go through sad times and tough times in our lives in which God will seem to be silent, waiting for us just to trust and obey him. And she taught us a valuable, precious lesson About worship and sacrificing our all to Jesus. You know, there's a an old hymn. It was appears to have been written around 1868 by a name uh, a man named J. L. Hall. Actually, he wrote a lot of hymns during his life, but this one seems to be a mystery. You know, many famous hymns. um, Day by day, with each passing moment, um, it is well with my soul. They have. Phenomenal stories behind them, sometimes tragic stories, but fabulous stories of how the hymn was put together, why was it written, what's the meaning behind it and stuff. Great stories, but this one is a mystery. Um, Sitting at the feet of Jesus has no surviving account. All we have is just the sweet, simple lyrics of a meditation. I can't think of any better way to end this lesson let me just read you the lyrics, the three-verse lyrics of this song. Sitting at the feet of Jesus, oh, what words I hear him say. Happy place so near, so precious. May it find me there each day, sitting at the feet of Jesus. I would look upon the past, for his love has been so gracious. It has won my heart at last. Sitting at the feet of Jesus, where? can Can mortal be more blessed? There I lay my sins and sorrows, and when weary, find sweet rest. Sitting at the feet of Jesus, there I love to weep and pray, while I, from his fullness, gather grace and comfort every day. Bless me, O my Savior, bless me, as I sit low at thy feet, Oh, look down in love upon me. Let me see thy face so sweet. Give me, Lord, the mind of Jesus. Keep me holy as he is. May I prove I've been with Jesus, who is all my righteousness. Father, I thank you for this this hymn, for this lessons of Mary. What a challenge to to take time and sit at the feet of Jesus. And I pray, Lord, that you help us to implement the lessons we learn from Mary into our lives, and we find ourselves often sitting at the feet of Jesus. So until we meet again, take care, and may God bless.
0: Thanks for tuning in, and thank you to our donors who make this program possible. Evidence for Faith is a 501c3 nonprofit ministry based in the USA. You can support this broadcast by donating online using the links in the description. And don't forget to leave us a comment, a review, likes, and shares to feed the algorithm and help others find this content. Thanks again, and we'll see you on the next episode.